0: Hello, my friends. Thank you so much for joining me for this webinar. I am Rick Thomas, and I'm glad that you are here. I've titled this webinar, Family, Friends, and Other Secondary Considerations. And what I want to explore throughout this webinar is the danger of elevating important things in our lives to a level of priority that actually blurs and hinders how we think about those people that we love the most. All of us have family members, and we have friends, and we want the best for them. But the temptation is, is that we can elevate our desire for them to such a degree that we actually get in the way of accomplishing the good purposes and the desires that we have for them. And so the title again is Family, Friends, and Other Secondary Considerations, and a great way to get at what I am suggesting here and the appeal that I'm making throughout this webinar is I want you to answer this question. This is how I want you to to start and if you would take the time maybe to mentally jot something down or even on a piece of paper if you would jot down your answer to this question. Here it is. If everything in your life cannot be the most important thing in your life, which is true, We cannot gather and collect everything in our life and put it at the the top of the pyramid. We all live with a pyramid, a hierarchy, a hierarchy, a, a structure. And at the very top, the very point, the apex, that is the most important thing. That's the visual that I want to communicate to you in this webinar. And so everything cannot be collected and gathered and placed at the point. Only one thing can And so because everything in your life cannot be the most important thing in your life, here's the question. What is the most important aspect to you? If you were to choose your top priority, your top aim, your top goal, your number one goal in life, what would you choose? Now, if you would mentally jot something down, maybe on a piece of paper, jot something down. If you're a husband and wife watching this or a family watching this, this would be a great opportunity at the end of the webinar to compare notes based on what you have watched. Maybe even a small group could do a similar thing. And then as you talk through based on what you have watched and heard here, you could have it could be a transformative discussion for any marriage, any family, any group of friends. All right, so you have that thing in your mind. If you were to choose your top priority, top aim, top goal in life, what would you choose? Now, I want to mention a few goals that all of us should have in our lives. But everyone that I'm going to mention here are secondary goals. Now, maybe as you read through this list, you will see the thing that you jotted down, either mentally or on a piece of paper. Now, I don't want you to change, okay, just to get the right answer. I want you to hold fast to the thing that you have, that you've made a note of Even though you may see it on this list and may think, well, possibly I've gotten it wrong because it's very common for us to elevate secondary goals to a place of primary aim or desire in our lives. For example, your wife's sanctification is an outstanding goal, but it cannot be the primary goal in your life. Now, if you're a wife watching this, you would just substitute the word husband and you would say my husband's sanctification and that's what i jotted down if that's what you jotted down then that would be that would be a mistake and you want to change that i don't want you to care less for your spouse but to appropriately To care for your spouse the best way, you can't make them your primary goal in life. Well, what about your children's concerns? For those of us who have children, I think it's kind of understood that we live in a 24-7 state of concern. There's a low-riding worry in our lives that runs through our lives because we love our children and because we are fallen people. It's very easy to cross the line and over-worry about our children because we hope so much for them. We want them to have the best possible kind of life. And so I'm not suggesting that you care less for your children, but make sure that you prioritize your concerns for your children to at least a secondary or tertiary position. Well, what about your children's salvation? Shouldn't that be a primary goal? No, it's the secondary goal I will explain In a few moments, for those of you who are vocationally centered or career centered, maybe it's the job that you do, whether it's inside the home or outside the home, you work hard and you work until the Lord. And that is the main thing about your life. I'm glad that you work hard inside or outside the home. I'm glad that you do your job well, but that cannot be the main thing perhaps there are reputational aspirations and i'm using this term in a a good sense here we won't have a good reputation with the lord we won't have, we want to have a good reputation with others also, as we live the Christ-like, that is a good reputation, and that's the reputation that we want. And so maybe your reputational aspirations, in the good sense of that term, is the most important thing for you. I would suggest that you make that, too, a secondary goal. Now, maybe I didn't list anything for you that you have already thought about. Well, then my last line item is for you to to fill in the blank. And let me give you two case studies to uh, get us thinking about a person who has elevated good things that he wants for, in this case, for his wife and his children. He has taken those and he has elevated them and given them such a prominence in his mind that it controls him in an adverse way, adverse to his walk with God. And of course, it is sabotaging his family. His love and desire for them is actually sabotaging his family because he's elevated secondary desires to a higher position than what the Bible would support and so I have my fictional friends here Biff and Mabel and Biffy I have begin began using uh, these fictional characters a few years ago. So uh, what I used to do is I'd use real people and real names and and someone would on occasion, they would accuse me or suggest that I'm talking about them and it's not true. And so I changed the names to fictional people because I don't know anybody named Biff, Mabel, and Biffy. And Biffy's sister is Biffina, by the way. But Biff, Mabel, Biffy, and Biffina represent all of us. And I think from time to time we can find our Themselves in parts of their story. And so I want to talk about them as an illustration of the point that I want to make throughout this webinar. And so Biff's chief aim in life is is his wife. And I mentioned earlier in a previous slide that Biff's wife, her sanctification cannot be uh, his primary aim in life. Now Mabel has a problem. She is a shopaholic. She is addicted to shopping. The way some people are addicted to comfort food or binge-watching TV or maybe drugs or or maybe something else. Well, Mabel's vice or her addiction, or to put it within a biblical framework, in Galatians 6.1, the thing that has captured Mabel is this desire to go out and shop because it feeds her heart idolatries. And Bill is very much aware of this. And so when Mabel goes out to shop Bill becomes frustrated, which is an accurate descriptor, a more painful and stark descriptor is what James is saying in James four, one, two, and three, that you desire and you do not have, so you murder. Well Biff has a desire for Mabel, and that desire is for her to get uncaught from shopaholism. And his method for getting her uncaught is to murder her, to use James's language, or to become frustrated. Now the problem here is you can probably intuit based on uh, the theme of this webinar is that he's elevated his desires for his wife a little too high to where what she does is managing him. And so what Biff has done, he has cut up her Credit cards. Now, perhaps that is the right thing to do. I don't know. In Matthew 5 30, it talks about cutting your hand off or plucking your eye out, and and you could probably insert here cutting up credit cards as a partial solution, but there's something else more sinister in play here. And so the amputational approach could be good, but it's not the best for what Bill and Mabel have going on because there are deeper issues. And so he did cut up her credit cards, and of course, Mabel went out promptly. She figured out away to circumvent what was going on and she bought more shoes. Well, Biff lost his mind. And so our conclusion is is that Mabel has a problem. It's obvious. Sin has captured her it has lured her into the store to the place to where it's it's not a I I just ca- I can't stop this. It's like I won't stop this. It's, it's that strong and that controlling with Mabel. And of course Biff, obviously, has a problem, too. Illustration number two. When your son becomes your chief purpose in your life, and so now we have Biffy. Now, Biffy's not a believer, and Biff is a a pastor. This is not an uncommon thing. Being a pastor doesn't give you special privilege. Uh, We are regenerated by grace. Repentance is a gift from God, and in this instance, uh, God's grace has not imposed itself in Biffy's life, and Biff being a pastor is is almost irrelevant as far as that's concerned, because again, repentance is a gift. So we have this dynamic of a pastor with an unbelieving son, again, common. And now Biff has caught Biffy smoking weed, and Biff, similar to Mabel, but this time even more volatile, more uh, hyperbole as far as his anger is concerned. He went ballistic, and so he lectured Biffy about salvation, now you can see an inherent danger here: is that Biffy may become a Christian, and that could be problematic. I mean, if if someone was ballistic and lecturing me, I might salute the flag myself. Uh, this individual Biff, in this case, has taken a a secondary, excellent goal. And he has intensified it so much that uh, now is controlling him in ways that are not healthy for him and his family. And so Biffy obviously has a problem. He's smoking weed, and of course there's a deeper problem that uh, he has not been regenerated, and of course Biff has a problem too. The risk in aiming at a secondary goal is that you may obtain that goal. I mentioned that earlier, that the way that Biff is Reaching for this secondary goal in Biffy's life is that he may attain that goal, at least an unbiblical version of it. The unbiblical version of reaching this goal is for Biffy to make a profession of faith because his dad has been lecturing him so much and has gone ballistic on him so many times. And so the risk in aiming at a secondary goal is that you may attain that goal, or at least an unbiblical or sub-biblical version of it. While missing the most important goal in your life. And so the goal is you don't want to avoid secondary goals, but we have to be aware of some of the pitfalls of over-focusing on secondary goals. And so let's go back to the illustration of Biff and Mabel the, sh- the Shopaholic. Now, Biff has made his wife's sanctification as his primary goal. Therefore, what we have here in his approach Or the template that he is using to get her to stop shopping is an Ephesians 4, 22 and 24 model. Now, when I talk about Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, I'm intentionally skipping verse 23. You see, verse number 22 says, put off your former manner of life. And verse 24 says, put on a Christ-like life. Verse 23 says, renew your mind, and that is a critical aspect to the change process. The change process is not a two-step process, but it is a three-step process, according to what Paul is teaching in 4:22 through verse number 24. But because Biff has his wife's sanctification as a primary goal, the danger that he is running into is what Jesus talked about in Matthew 23 verse 27. He was lecturing, Jesus was, the Pharisees and he was telling them that you look pretty on the outside. You're like whited tombs, whitewashed tombs, whited sepulchures, to use the King James language. But the inside is full of dead men's bones. And so Jesus's approach to sanctification is not just to look good on the outside. It's similar to what Paul is teaching in Ephesians 4, that we also must be transformed on the inside The problem with Biff, because he has elevated Mabel's sanctification as the primary thing in his life, that it has clouded his vision, has blurred his vision to where he cannot see uh, the deeper issues going on in her heart, the renewing of the mind, and he is setting her up to be a, a whited grave that she will look right on the outside but be all wrong on the inside, and he is pushing her toward a quick-fix mentality. I mean, think about it. If someone was belligerent towards you and lecturing you all the time about your lifestyle, well, if you can't get away from them and you have to live with them on an ongoing basis, you will tend to conform, but that conformity would be external, and it would not be Internal. And so Biff is basically saying, just stop it. And he's using manipulation. He's using force. He's using her anger, his anger, to accomplish this goal. He has lost his mind. And that was part of the case study earlier. When she did this, he lost his mind. He did because he's not thinking about this problem the right way. Demanding behavioral modification, regardless of your good intentions. It will blow up in your face. It's the child who says you you have lectured them and told them repeatedly to sit down, sit down, sit down. Well, the child sits down, but he says, I am standing up on the inside. And this is what Biff could accomplish in his marriage, and that would be dangerous. And so let's look at the approach, a similar approach that Biff is taking with his son Biffy, That he has taken also with his wife. A temptation to controlling worry is the problem when you have a secondary goal as the primary goal. And that's why I was saying earlier for all of us parents, there can be this temptation to have this 24 7 low riding worry operating in our hearts even to the point of controlling us because we have the wrong goal in mind. We have elevated the concerns of our children to a place to now we are truly oversteering the car or over worrying the problem. And so a temptation to controlling worry is when we have a secondary goal. but then someone would say, well, Biffy is not a believer so are you saying, Rick, that we should not, witness? No, I'm not saying that at all. Uh, We should witness every day of our lives. We should always be evangelistic in our thinking. We want to be missional Christians every day. We want to tell people about Christ until Christ returns. We never want to stop proclaiming the message of Christ. So I am not saying that at all, but I'm talking about the accent mark that we place on the entire sentence, and the wrong accent mark leads to the wrong actions. And so the sentence is that, yeah, I want my child to be saved, but that cannot be the primary thing in my life. And so the accent mark is not on his salvation, but it's on the primary thing, which I will get to in just a moment. But whenever we put the accent, and you saw it with Biff as he's interacting with his wife, Mabel, and he's doing the very same thing uh, with his son. And one of the dangers is that if you put the accent mark on the wrong thing, you could fall into the trap of Christian activities versus God-centered relational priorities. I want you to think about those two phrases. I will unpack those in just a minute, minute. But when you juxtapose those two ideas, Christian activities with God-centered relational priorities, they are antithetical. And where we want to land and where we must land is God-centered relational priorities over Christian activities. Let me illustrate what I mean. Christian activities could be, here's a list of four things, routine, behavioristic busy schedules, and Christianese. Our language becomes Christianese. And I have seen this, and I'm sure that you have as well, that a family that is doing—now, I am not shaming Christian activities. Uh, Christian activities are fantastic if those Christian activities is a a subset if they come up under God-centered relational priorities. But my point here is, is that if you have the wrong thing as the main thing, then the Christian activities that you do, they will be hollow. They will ring hollow. Uh, They will be empty. They will be what I was saying about Jesus, the Pharisees in Matthew 23, That Christian activities will look good on the outside, but the inside would be full of dead men's bones. And so when I talk about Christian activities in this context, I am speaking that way. Because the truth is, we want to have a routine. Uh, We want to be routine. We want to be predictable that way when it comes to our Christian activities. But if it's devoid of God-centered relational priorities, then that routine uh, is just a facade. uh, Behavioristic. This is what Biff is driving for with his wife and his child, because he's missing the main thing in his life. Another aspect of Christian activities is busy schedules, that we have all of our children and all of the Christian things that we do, all of the programs of the church, all the the, the initiatives that the church is doing, all the meetings that they have, the children's ministry and the youth ministry and, and the other stuff that goes on. And again, those things do not necessarily have to be bad. They should not be bad, but... If it's ringing hollow because we're missing out on God-centered relational priorities, then we are making a mistake and we have prioritized the wrong thing. Even to the point that we're speaking Christianese, we have learned the language, but our heart is far from it. And of course, Jesus talked about that in Matthew as well. You call me Lord, but I I never knew you. God-centered relational priorities look different. Here's the list. These things are not corresponding to the four Christian activities that I've given you, so they're not mirrors of each other. They're, they're unrelated in that way, but these are four different indicators that would suggest that people who live this way, they have God-centered relational priorities. For example, number one, repentance, which includes, in part, sin, confession, forgiveness, so a repenting family, a repenting marriage, that is God-centered relational priorities. And so you, you feel the heart inside their activities. They're just not doing routine and behavior and busy schedules and Christian needs, but they are repenting. They, they're sinning, of course, as we all do, but they're owning it. They're confessing. They're seeking forgiveness Uh, They are reconciling with each other, they're restoring with each other, they're putting off, they're renewing, they're putting on all the aspects of repentance. Another indicator here of God-centered relational priorities is serving each other. As Jesus said, I didn't come to serve. Uh, (laughs) He said, I didn't come here to be served, rather. I came here to serve. And a person who has God-centered relational priorities will have that mindset to serve. See, Biff was not serving his wife by yelling at her. Biff was not serving his son by lecturing him in the way that he was. Another indicator of God-centered relational priorities is personal integrity, transparency, And then a fourth one is modeling Christ, just simply being Christ-like. And so as you look at these two lists on this slide, you can see a huge radical difference between Christian activities in the context of Matthew 23, that looks good on the outside, but it's ringing hollow on the inside, versus God-centered relational priorities. And if you have the right aim, you'll be operating from the right side of this list, not from the left If you put all your energy into leading someone to Christ, you may become disappointed, especially if that is your primary focus. Over time, you may become discouraged and even bitter, critical, cynical, because your chief aim for them did not happen. Now, this quote is an illustration of the end result of a person who has the chief aim in their life— as a secondary a secondary goal as the chief aim in their life because they're trying so hard for so long, and that's the most important thing for them that eventually they'll become disappointed. And if it continues, they'll become disappointed discouraged. They may even become bitter, critical, and cynical because they had their priorities out of order, and you'll find some parents like this because the number one thing in their life is for their children to become Christians, and as important as that is, it's still a secondary goal. The thing that matters the most is the thing that will control you the most, and that is the overriding quote for this entire webinar, the thing that matters most is the thing that will control you the most, and you could tell from the case studies with Bill and Mabel and Bill and biffy that the thing that mattered the most to biff was the wrong thing even though if you were counseling biff and he was talking to you about his wife's sanctification or his child's salvation if you weren't careful you could uh, you you could affirm biff and the direction that he's taken for his family and not tweak his aims, bring his aims down a little bit and substitute his primary aims with what should be the most important. When the main thing is to get the children saved, there is a good chance that they may get saved. What else would you expect, as I was saying earlier? Expectations demanded are usually met when the children are young. And if Biff, if Biffy just salutes the flag and he asks Jesus in his heart and he pretends that he is a believer to get his daddy off his back, Uh, this is going to be a huge, huge disappointment for everyone when Biff becomes an adult living on his own. Therefore, the million-dollar question is, what is your primary aim? What should be at the top of the pyramid? All Christians should have the same primary aim in life. If we do not, we will hurt our relationships, especially those that we love the most. What is the primary aim in life? Many of you have already figured it out. It is 1 Corinthians 10.31. It is a potent sentence that is so short. Paul said it this way. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God of God. That sentence has to be sitting at the top of the pyramid. And every other desire, every hope, every aspiration, every goal that we have is subordinate to this one here. So whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, you do all for the glory of God. Now, what does it mean to glorify God? Here are a few thoughts. One, make his name great. That's a great way to say it. To glorify God is to to make His name great. Maybe you want to say it this way. Spread His fame everywhere. Uh, I have a, a, a friend who, in fact, one of the most influential people uh, in, in my life. Uh, he's in heaven now, but Uh, He would always say, who can we be Jesus to today? That's another way of saying I think it's a great way to talk about how to glorify God. Maybe if you take that statement and, and run it back through the two case studies that I shared earlier, who could Biff be Jesus to today? How could Biff be Jesus to Mabel when she comes home again with another pair of shoes? How could Biff be Jesus to Biffy when he is caught smoking weed again. No, I'm not talking about this mushy snowflake love that we have in our culture today, because some people, they have two extreme categories. They either go ballistic and lose their mind, as as Biff did, confrontational. I mean, the harshest form of confrontational. And then when you talk about love, then they only have one category for love. It's the snowflakey love that has no force, it has no power. Love sometimes means confrontational. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And so when I talk about Biff loving his wife appropriately, he may, probably will confront her, but it will feel a whole lot different than what I described in that case study. And the same thing for uh, Biffy, how he interacts with Biffy. So as my friend used to say all the time, who can you be Jesus to today? Another aspect of to glorify God means giving him honor and respect, a good way to think about it, standing in holy awe of him. I I don't think that there is really a a sentence or a haiku way of of talking about the glory of God. And these four statements here, it's trying to surround that term to give it all the nuance, the contour, the color that we want to give it because To glorify God is a a short term, but it is full of all sorts of of power and brilliance. And so we want to make his name great. We want to spread his fame everywhere, giving him honor and respect, standing in holy awe of him. There is a gravity and a weightiness to the glory of God. And then the effect that it has on us. So if you take these five things that I've mentioned— make his name great, spread his fame everywhere, giving him honor and respect, standing in holy awe of him, gravity and weightiness, then there is an effect on us. And there are many words that can describe the effect. I have three of them here on this slide. Humbling, motivating, compelling. And you can think of more, of course. But when when our chief aim in life is to glorify God, there is a proportional effect on our lives when we are doing it the right way. And so Biff would be approaching his wife in a humble way, not an over-the-top authoritarian beatdown, basically, verbally. And that's the same thing that he was doing with Biffy, But he would be coming toward his family in a humble way, a motivating way, a compelling way. Even his confrontation of his family will be motivating and compelling. And so the chief aim in life is to glorify God. Jesus said it this way in 1230 of Mark and you shall love the lord your god with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength you you see the totality of what glorifying god means and so you could take what paul said in 1st corinthians 10:31 what jesus said here in 12:30 of Of mark and just just mesh it all together. And it is full of brilliance and power and transformation and how it affects our souls. Let me give you a few illustrations or a few quotes to think about the effects of God's glory on the soul. For example, number one, it's an attitude. When sufficiently controlling the mind, it creates a filter that guards your heart while directing your thoughts. Think about that. So let's say that to glorify God is, is a, a window. I, I said it creates a filter that guards your heart. That is a window that you're looking through and so everything that goes through that window, it, 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 it is controlled and managed by this idea of, of glorifying God. It's, it's an attitude. When sufficiently controlling the mind, it creates the filter that guards the heart while directing your thoughts. Here's another one. It guards against being overcome by sin because the glory of God is more profound. And we see that throughout the life of Jesus in the four gospels. Whenever Sin was forced upon him through the sin of his his own apostles, through the sin of the Pharisees, through the sin of the other people, people who did harsh things for him, because his chief aim in life was to do his do the will of his father, which is another way of saying glorifying God. Well, no matter what they did to him, it did not overcome him because the glory of God was his chief aim. It was more profound. Imagine if, if Biff's chief aim was to glorify God, then the sin of Mabel and the sin of Biffy would not have so much power and management over Biff's mind. Number three, it teaches you to export Jesus to others because God's glory dominates your thinking. Well, if the glory of God is the attitude that you have, if that is your controlling thought, well, then from the heart, the mouth speaks. And so it is apparent from my two case studies that, that the most dominating thought in Biff's mind was not to glorify God, because what came up from the reservoir of his heart and out through his mouth were harsh and caustic and uh, words that did not edify and build up, but tore down, beat down, It teaches you to export Jesus to others because God's glory dominates your thinking. Nothing else could come off your lips because that is what's dominating your thoughts. Number four, your intake and outflow. I'm talking about your interactions. The interactions that come in, the interactions that go out, they run through your glory to God filter. And so everything that comes into you, no matter what it is. I talked about this earlier with with Christ. Christ was guarded from sin because when sin came in it, the intake what people did to him, it was absorbed by this powerful desire to glorify God. Therefore what came out, well, it came out of that same filter, that that washing process, that transformation process, and so uh, the transformation process. And so it's like to glorify God is like a, a washing machine of sorts. It just gets all the impurities out, and then what comes out is something completely different. And then number five, living for God's glory releases you from fear and frustration while giving you the right motive to respond well to others. Because your heart your thoughts, your mind, your internal being is saturated with a desire to glorify God, then fear and frustration can't commingle with God's glory. And so, like the washing machine illustration that I was using earlier, those are the impurities. The dominating thing that you have is God's glory. And so, fear and frustration cannot commingle. And so now your motivations are right, therefore you can respond well to others. The effects of God's glory on the soul, it's an attitude. It guards from being overcome. It teaches you to export Jesus. It changes all your interactions. And it releases you from fear and frustration while giving you the right motive to communicate well with others. But when good desires blind, and that is the problem, Bad desires we can tend to identify quickly unless we are completely dull or we have a completely hardened conscious that we've blinded our minds. We pretty much know when our desires are wrong, but in the two illustrations in the case studies that I presented to you, you notice that the desires that Biff had for his family were good desires. He wanted his wife to uh, overcome this addiction, this this caughtness that she had for shopping, and he wanted his, wife, his son to become a believer. Biff wanted his wife to change. Biff wanted his son to love God, but Biff was missing the mark. Now, one of the keys that you'll be able to discern if your motivations are right or wrong, or if you have elevated a good desire to the place of prominence uh, in your life and relationships is when you miss the mark. The This little term, miss the mark, is the definition for, for sinning. That's what sinning means. Uh, sinning is like shooting an arrow at a target, and, it, and the target is, is perfection. And if you miss the target, you have sin. That's a picture of what it means to sin. And so When you look at this on this slide, it says Biff wants his wife to change. Biff wants his son to love God. That's good. But Biff has missed the mark. Not only has he missed the mark, he's sinning against his wife and his child. He is sabotaging his family. He is making things worse. He has a desire that is on steroids. And you could say that Mabel's choices have controlled Biff. When you elevate something to the point to where you want it as more than anything else in the world, then whatever that thing is, it controls you. Now, again, if to glorify God is the most important thing in your life, you want that to control you. But if you put anything else at the top of the pyramid, well, then that will control you. And Mabel's choices, Biff is a puppet to what Mabel is doing. And even though Biff is coming off the top rope and sinning badly against his wife, he is also a submitted person. He's submitted to her choices. Her choices have power over him. And so in another sense, Biff is just a puppet. And the same with Biffy as well. Biffy's choices control Biff. Biff is not a free man. God is not controlling Biff, and it's obvious. And the reason why is because good desires have blinded him. If the chief end of all humanity managed Biff, he would be free from his family's control while released to bring a better kind of care to them. It is a spirit-empowered, spirit-illuminated, spirit-illuminated care. The Spirit of God would be empowering Biff. It would give him the energy rather than the sinful desires that he has. Biff's mind would be illuminated. The Spirit of God would be giving him light, which will give him the right responses that, that he should be putting forth toward his wife and family, a redemptive type of care if he was under the Spirit's power and under the Spirit's illumination. Spirit, uh, then Biff would be a Spirit-enabled Human being. Forcing righteousness on another person, it shows a lack of understanding of how change happens because repentance is a gift from the Lord, not a thing manipulated by spouses or parents. Therefore, if Biff came to you and shared with you this story about his wife's shopaholic ways or his son's weed smoking, you want to be very careful in how you care for Biff. You want to tease out what is going on here. You want to carefully and with discernment, you want to ask Biff specific questions about how he has responded to them, because what you have, or what you could have in this situation, is a person who is complicating a real problem. And so there's no question that Mabel and Biffy have legitimate problems that need uh, to be changed. But when you compound that problem by throwing your sin on top of these two individuals, then it makes it even harder for the person to change. Forcing righteousness on another person, it shows a lack of understanding of how change happens. Repentance is a gift from the Lord, not a thing manipulated by spouses, or parents." Having the right perspective is what makes Jesus so amazing. He was not controlled by people's actions, even his blood kin. And you see that story in Matthew 12, 46 through 50, when they came to him and they said, Lord, your your mother and your brothers are out here. You remember what Jesus said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? It's those who do the will of God. Jesus always had the right perspective. And so his disciples were trying to control him in a sense, and Jesus, he just changed things on a dime. He said, wait, let's have the right focus here. Now we know that that Jesus loved his mother and loved his brothers. We see that at the cross as he told John to take care of his mother. And that's what I was saying earlier, that if you have this cultural view of love, there will be no confrontation in it. You see, Jesus was, in a sense, confronting his disciples here by saying something that was very hard, but he was loving them. And so having the right perspective is what makes him so amazing. He was not controlled by what people did, or in this case, what people were asking him to do. He always zeroed in on his primary purpose in life, and he would not deviate from that main goal. You must decide if you're going to do the primary will of your Father. If you allow other aims to transcend that objective, you'll go off track and you will hurt people. If you are curious as to if you have done this, well then maybe a good way to think about it is to think about how you have responded recently to disappointing events in your life. Perhaps your spouse or your child or a friend has disappointed you recently. Did you miss the mark? Did you shoot the arrow at the target and miss the target? And, and it, is it confusing or, or, is it, or has it been confusing because you have a good desire for them? And that desire has been inflated and elevated and placed as the most important thing in your life. And because of that, it has blinded how you think about the person that you should be helping, not hindering. Our job, my job, we are to water and plant. That is it. Realizing that we cannot provide growth. And so we need to be released from the pressure and the deception of expecting or forcing others to change according to our expectations. If you go back to the illustrations, the case studies with Biff and and Biffy, or Biff and Mabel and, and Biffy, Biff was not released from the pressure or the deception of expecting others to conform, and so he was forcing them to change according to his expect, expectations. God's grace enables us to glorify God regardless of what others do, regardless of what others do. And what that means is that it is possible that that Mabel will never overcome her caughtness. It is possible that she will never overcome the The addiction that she has in her life it is possible that that biffy will never become a christian that he's never regenerated by the power of of god but this is true god's grace enables you to glorify god regardless of what others do if you make your chief aim in life other things you will live a frustrated and disappointed and anxious life Now, this would be a good time to to think through your—if you have ongoing worry and frustration and disappointment in somebody else because they're not doing something that you want them to do, that you expect them to do, don't be blinded by your good desire. Maintain that good desire. Never stop praying for them never stop looking for an opportunity to be Jesus for them or to them. But we can't force that on them. Uh, we don't want to be always pushing and pressuring and nagging and and, and and trying to manipulate them, even though we don't see it as manipulation. And we don't see that what is controlling us is not god's glory thus we're not released people we are not free people god's grace enables us to glorify him regardless of what others do let's take some time to reflect on everything that you have watched in and, and heard here's a question for you do you see the importance of god's glory being your chief aim in life i i trust that, i mean that's a yes and no yes or no question close-ended and I trust that your answer is is yes, that you see the importance. But here's an open-ended question. What does that look like for you? Will you be specific? At the beginning of this webinar, I asked, what if you jot down the most important thing in your life? Now, maybe you said to glorify God. Okay, you got the right answer. Let's take that a step further. You have passed the Christian 101 exam. I'm not making fun of you. I'm not. Uh, I'm not being cynical here at all, and I don't mean that at all, but I do understand how how Christianity works because I understand in my own life that there can be a difference between theological intelligence, classical information, that we all should know and that we all should pass the test, but then when it comes to application, that can be another animal. And so maybe you did write down that, well, my primary aim in life is to glorify God. And you knew 1 Corinthians 10 31. That is very good, by the way. And you, you want to be able to pass that part of the test. But what does it look like for you? Would you be specific? Now, maybe you, you could do this in a backward kind of way. Rather than you explaining how it looks like in your life, perhaps you could interview your spouse or interview your children. Children, perhaps you could interview your parents, or maybe interview someone who knows you very well, knows you better than others know you. Maybe teenage friends when you are away from your parents, where they cannot see you, Would you have an honest and open, a transparent, a humble conversation with those people who know you outside of the shadow of your parents? What would they say as you interview them? And so do you see the importance of God's glory being your chief aim? Yes. Okay. What does that look like for you? Be specific. Will you talk to your spouse about this? Will you talk to your friends? Would you talk to your parents or talk to your children, interview them. You're about to get married. What is the chief aim of your boyfriend or girlfriend? Again, be specific. How do you know? I have often called the dating season the artificial season in which the boy and the girl fake each other out until they get married. I say that tongue-in-cheek, but uh, not altogether. Uh, that is partly true. And so you're about to get married. What is the chief aim of your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Be specific. And we can't let love cloud how we think about this, because during this season of pre-engagement, engagement, engagement and pre-marriage, we can be so blind because love chooses to be that way, the wrong kind of love, which is probably more like lust instead of real love. Here's a question tied to this, will you have two other people who know you, give their opinion about your future mate's chief aim in life? I could probably introduce you to a dozen people. I could introduce you to more than that, if I took the time to think about it, who would love to sit down with a boyfriend, girlfriend, a young couple about to get married. uh, and just talk to them about the importance of this question because these people, they're have they living a life of regret because they either didn't know to do this, or they didn't do this, or they didn't want to do this, or they just had this pie-in-the-sky idea of how things were going to be, and they just did not want to know what they did not know. And I know that I could find a couple of dozen people who would love to implore, to beg, to appeal to you to take the time. A little bit of embarrassment, and maybe even calling off a wedding, for example, uh, would be far better. Whatever pain that is would be far better than living decades with regret, and it happens too often, and there are many people listening to this webinar who know that is true. Question number three, what has primarily characterized your marriage? And so as you look back, you all sit down and watch the movie of your marriage up to this point. What has been the chief aim? What has been the number one thing at the top of the pinnacle? What is the center of your life? What is the center of your marriage? Is it God's fame? Is it something else? How do you know? Do you agree? Husband and wife, do you agree? This would be an outstanding marriage inventory, conversation, interview. It would be a fabulous conversation uh, with your family members. Uh, If you could all sit around, I realize that some families cannot do that, and some marriages aren't at the place because God's fame has not characterized their marriage, and they're in such a place that they cannot have an adult Christian mature conversation. Now, if that is true, uh, then if you're at that place already, I would strongly appeal to you to... I would appeal to you to get some help so that you can begin having these conversations because there needs to be a restructuring of the marriage if you're in that place. Would two of your closest friends, what would two of your closest friends say about your chief aim in life as a couple? Thank you so much for watching the webinar. I am Rick Thomas. The title of the webinar is Family, Friends, and Other Secondary Considerations. If you have any questions about this webinar or any other question that you might have, then please come to our ministry, our ministry website. You're welcome to ask those questions. We would love to serve you by answering them if we can. Our resources are free. You will find millions of words through article content podcast content, video content like these webinars. Also go to our webinar page and check out the other webinars. You will benefit tremendously from them. For those of you who appreciate what we're doing, please understand that there is a a huge time investment and a financial investment in giving these resources away freely. If you are in a place where you can support our ministry financially, we need you. We are a growing team of of people who who we exist to provide these life-changing resources so that we can equip Christians to go out and help others. There will be many people watching this webinar. They will they will be changing, and they will go out, and they will impact other lives. If this is something that you want to get behind, we could use your support. I would ask you to pray about it. Again, any questions you have, please come and ask. Thanks again for watching the webinar